Welcome to another episode of NeuroTalk, the interview series for Stanford University's weekly neuroscience seminar brought to you by NeuroEd West. I'm Ada Yee, a neuroscience graduate student here at Stanford. Today our guest is Kristen Branson, a group leader at the Howard Hughes Medical Institute's Genalia Research Campus. We'll be talking with her about searching for the right topic to study, tracking animal behavior using machine learning, and thinking about problems globally. All this and more coming up. We're here today with Kristen Branson, a group leader at Genalia Research Campus. Thank you so much for speaking with us today, Dr. Branson. Sure. Thanks for having me. All right. So usually we like to get started with your early background. So apparently your first love was not neuroscience, but actually math and astrophysics. Um, so could you maybe start by telling us what you were interested in when you were a kid? And when did you first get interested in math or science? Um, yes. Yeah, so when I was a kid, I wanted to be an astronaut, like <laughs> most kids do. Um, and uh, I maybe didn't give up on that dream for a long time. Yeah. Um, so um, I was very interested in kind of astronomy and physics, um, yeah. kind of as a kid and in college. Um, I worked at NASA for a couple of summers. And, and I guess from a very young age, I was interested in, in uh, you know, just from going to like the science center as a kid, you know, the science museum. Uh, my dad is a physicist. So oh, um, that was that was also, you know, a inspiring to me. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and as an undergrad, uh, uh, you switched late from an astrophysics major to computer science. So can you tell us about, you know, how that developed and, and what you were doing at that time? So, so part of it was just that, so I, you know, I took a lot of physics classes and I took a lot of computer science classes um, mm-hmm. as part of my physics major. And it, uh, part of it was just that I was better at and enjoyed doing kind of the, the work for computer science more than I did for physics. I mean, I, I still find astrophysics very interesting, um, but you also have to do kind of where what your skill skills are. And I'm mm-hmm. just better at mm-hmm. computer science and kind of that kind of thinking than I am at, at, at the type of thinking that's involved in physics, I think. Mm-hmm. More problem solving, you would say, or... Yeah, I, 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 really, I mean, that's what I like about computer science is the kind of problem solving aspect of it um, that you, know, you can kind of formulate a real world problem that that you want to solve and, mm-hmm. um, you know, really just kind of engineer a solution to it. Um, and in mm-hmm. computer science, there's kind of a theoretical part of that where you think about algorithms um, and there's a practical part of that where you make something that that really works. Mm-hmm. Um, what year were you when you switched majors? Um, it was it was my third year I graduated early so it was my oh. last year also so you couldn't yeah. get into one year <laughs> yeah um so you went on to do your PhD also in computer science at UC San Diego um where you eventually ended up studying machine learning but my understanding is it took you a while to find the right topic what other things did you think about studying um so they were all kind of within they, they it might sound somewhat narrow but I mean yeah. they're all within computer science um I thought about you know, more theoretical things like um cryptography things like that um and uh then i started working on more more theoretical machine learning um where you're just kind of proving things about algorithms as opposed to actually you know making systems that you know solve real problems um so it's it's fairly related it, um to machine learning but mm-hmm. it's uh, kind of a different aspect of machine learning um and then you know uh Maybe by my third year, I figured out that I actually wanted to do computer vision and machine learning. So, you know, developing practical systems that um, input video or images and use machine learning to um, find statistics of those images that Mm -hmm. are predictive for various tasks. Um, So did you have to switch like labs or advisors a couple of times? I had three advisors during grad school. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's, you know... 
I'm interested in a lot of things and, you know, you can kind of find a lot of things that are interesting to you um, if you're kind of a curious person. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I just kind of, you know, I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. And it, I had, you know, a lot of interesting projects with different advisors and mm-hmm. kind of eventually settled on one that I tried to make a career out of. Yeah. And so uh, backing up for a minute. So for those who are, may not be familiar, um, can you just quickly define machine learning um, and, and broadly what it means Sure. I, I think so the kind of canonical type of machine learning is um, called supervised machine learning. Mm-hmm. And so there we're trying to um, train a classifier. So a classifier is just um, a function that can input some kind of data, like raw data, like an image, something like that. Mm-hmm. And then um, we'll try to predict um, something that you care about, about that image. So like for um, object classification, you might take an image and say, this is a picture of a car or this mm-hmm. is a picture of a person. Mm-hmm. Um, and so machine learning is trying to kind of learn the types of functions that um, that can predict those classes from from images. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a lot of statistics and it's a lot of math mm-hmm. to, to do that. So you basically give the, the computer is learning its own rules. I mean, how do you program that? Yeah. So there's a, I mean, it, it, it often comes down to kind of learning a parametric function. So mm-hmm. you define some family of functions that you're going to search over and then mm-hmm. you find the parameters within that family of, of functions that um, can can best predict your manual label. So as an example, just like the simplest example you could have, right? let's say you only have one feature that you're able to predict based on. So you want to, in our case, let's say we want to predict whether a fly is walking or not. And mm-hmm. the one feature we have is the speed of the fly. Mm-hmm. So you could try to learn just a simple threshold that says mm-hmm. if the fly is walking faster than, you know, mm-hmm. X millimeters per second, then we're going to call it walking. Mm-hmm. And so that, that parameter, that, th- that speed threshold is the type of thing that a machine learning system would learn. Of course, the machine learning systems that, that we work with usually learn kind of thousands to millions of parameters simultaneously. Um, so they're things that, you know, a human would have a lot of trouble kind of coming up with manually. Mm-hmm. And so what you do is you um, have a user who manually labels that the fly is walking in this frame and not walking in that frame. Mm-hmm. And then you choose the threshold or you choose the parameters to your function that can best match those manual labels. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the families of classifiers that um, machine learning systems will search over are mm-hmm. are ones that are, are kind of well chosen. So they're chosen so that if you have a classifier that works well on your training data, mm-hmm. then it will work well on new data that you ha- it hasn't been trained on. Okay, so you basically seed it with a little bit of information to start with. Yeah, so that's with supervised machine learning. So that's the supervision is kind of these okay. these labels. And then there's unsupervised learning, which mm-hmm. is, you know, just clustering your data, trying to find natural structure in your data. Gotcha. All right. And so going back to kind of your PhD uh, career, so you eventually ended up collaborating with the animal facility at UC San Diego to start tracking mouse movements while they're, you know, sitting in their cages and moving around um, using uh, computer vision. So how did you come up with this problem or, you know, come? to think that this is something that you might want to apply machine learning to? I mean, so so that was kind of, uh, you know, my, my advisor at the time's um, idea, the project. So he had a collaboration with um, the veterinary group at, at UCSD, um, and he had funding for me to work on this project, and I started working on it, and it was interesting to me. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm a little bit stubborn. I, I kind of will work <laughs> on a project and not give up until I feel like I've solved it, so... 
Yeah. And so one of the key features, so you came up with an algorithm to start um, tracking these mice in their cages. Um, and I love the title of your paper, Three Blind, three blind Mice, See How They Run. Yeah, three three brown mice. Brown. Oh, sorry, brown. Sorry, yeah. that's right. Um, they're not blind. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and... Um, so you were trying to overcome this interesting problem of occlusion of moving objects. So in this case, the moving mice, you know, sometimes they block each other as, as they're walking around. Can you kind of explain in more detail for us what the issue was and, and how in simple terms you dealt with it? Um, yeah, so this is one of the major problems in tracking, video-based tracking in general, is if, mm. um, if the object that you're trying to track is not visible in some frames, mm -hmm. you have to guess where it is. And it's particularly difficult if you have kind of two basically identical mice, right, one, one of which passes in front of the other. It, it's very difficult to estimate where the mice are in particular when they're overlapping. And if you have kind of two mice that will, say, cross each other, right, in front of the camera... Um, it's hard to know whether the mice both continue walking across and kind of follow a straight line or if they kind of run into each other and, and bounce apart. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the major problems in um, computer vision. Um, and uh, there are lots and lots of ways to, to try to solve it. Um, mm -hmm. One of the things that we tried to do when I was a, a grad student was trying to incorporate as much information as possible simultaneously to make a good guess of where the mice were. So there's a lot of different information that we use when we're with our eyes following following an animal. Mm -hmm. We'll use, you know, the this um, an assumption about how the animal moves. You know, animals are more likely to continue moving in a straight line than they mm -hmm. are to kind of bounce apart. And we also use kind of fine details in the images, like um, small edges that you might see between the two objects. You'll use kind of a very complicated model of what the animal looks like. Mm -hmm. And so I, uh, what, what I had tried to do for my PhD was combining all of that information simultaneously. So you can kind of create this fairly complex uh, mathematical criterion which says what a reasonable, how a mouse will move and kind of what, what where the mouse will be in kind of mathematical terms. Mm -hmm. And um, what we ended up doing was uh, is kind of not compromising on how complex that, that function is mm -hmm. and then coming up with a, um, a particle filtering-based method, so a kind of uh, uh, an optimization method for actually trying to determine where the mice were given that criteria. Okay. I don't know if that made sense. It's a bit complicated. But it sounds like a little bit you took some inspiration from, first of all, like what kind of things actual humans do right. when they when they look at things. You know, it's not just, oh, we, you know, see an object and we just, you know, characterize that object and always follow that object, but we actually anticipate a little bit their movements. Right, and yeah. And that's something that you had the computer do is actually anticipate a little bit, I guess. Right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so we put together as much information as we could, and it was all, it was very much engineered from the standpoint of, of what we think we're doing when we look at, mm -hmm. um, when we try to um, ourselves follow the, follow the mouse's movements. Mm -hmm. And to what degree does it sometimes actually depend on the resolution of the camera? I mean, you know, also the equipment, not just the algorithms that are looking at yeah, the Yeah, so that's, um, so when I started out, you know, we, we collected some video mm -hmm. and we didn't spend a lot of time thinking about, you know, where we put the camera or what type of lighting and mm -hmm. what kind of camera we use. And that makes the computer vision problem much, much harder. So um, as a postdoc, one mm -hmm. of the things I learned is that you should spend a lot of time, you know, engineering your rig so that um, it makes the computer vision problem as simple as possible. So you mm -hmm. can kind of save a lot of, you know, if, you're, if your general goal is just to track the animals, um, the kind of fastest solution is both to design a good rig um, and to come up with a, a good algorithm as opposed to just, you know, 
taking whatever rig you have and then trying to solve that difficult computer vision problem. So do people at UC San Diego still use this program or was it mostly um, just for proof of principle? Yeah, it was mostly for proof of principle. I think it was, it was something that was interesting algorithmically. But uh, I think it took about five minutes to track one frame of video um, with the algorithm <laughs> that I was using, which was a bit too slow to be practical. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, it never became a real thing, which was, you know, a little bit of a disappointment to me. Um, and, uh, you know, when in my postdoc, that was one of the things that I focused on was trying to make something that biologists would actually use. Right. And so uh, let's talk a little bit about that. So you're, for your postdoc, you went um, just a little bit up the coast to Caltech um, and you were working with, uh, sorry, it was... Uh, with Michael Dickinson with Michael and Dickinson. Uh, Pietro Perona. Okay, right. And uh, they work with flies. And so you, for your postdoc, you're actually now working on a similar problem, but now working on tracking large groups of behaving flies in arena, which uh, I think you called this high throughput ethonomics, I guess etho for behavior. Um, can you tell us about what kind of tracking programs were already available at that time for people in this field? Um, and then what your new program, which you called C-Tracks for Caltech Multiple Walking Fly Tracker, what, what could your program do that these programs couldn't do? So there wasn't at the time much available that was kind of usable by biologists. Mm -hmm. um, so I think there were single fly tracking programs, so you could kind of, you know, track one fly. Um, and then in the computer vision literature, there were a bunch of algorithms that people had designed for tracking multiple objects, but they weren't, you know, that there wasn't some, some actual software that you could download and use. They were kind of, you know, they were algorithms in a paper. Um, and so we tried to take a little bit of kind of the types of algorithms that people in computer vision were using at the time and actually make something uh usable um, mm -hmm. that could track multiple objects instead of just kind of one object. Mm -hmm. So so I guess I'm just curious. So it sounds like the machine learning community was interested in this problem. Did they already at that time conceive of this actually being a practical tool? It was really just theoretical. So so people definitely used tracking systems at the time. Mm -hmm. uh, there are not that many people in computer vision who actually work on biology applications. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we're, we're kind of a fringe group uh, <laughs> to do that. Mm -hmm. So the new program, the C-Tracks program that you developed, so this could now track multiple flies at a time. Um, were there actually particular challenges in designing this program, or was this something that transferred over pretty easily from your PhD? Yeah, I mean, I think the algorithm that we used was not terribly complex. Um, mm -hmm. It's, um, you know, I, I spent some time thinking about kind of what I wanted the algorithm to do, and so what I wanted the program to do well, what I what I didn't mind if it made mistakes on. Um, mm -hmm. So I, you know, I, I kind of looked at what algorithms were available at the time and kind of put some stuff together that that I thought would be a good solution. Um, one of the things that I wanted the algorithm to do that a lot of of um, algorithms in computer vision aren't great at is kind of be very robust. Mm -hmm. So if we're tracking flies for an hour or something like that, I didn't want it to make a mistake 10 minutes in and have mm -hmm. that mistake be something that it can never recover from. Mm -hmm. um, and so, um, so there are a lot of algorithms that like, like the ones that I worked on in my thesis where um, you can get stuck in these local optima where mm -hmm. you make some mistake and you just never can recover from it. Mm -hmm, right. um, and so I, I kind of tried to avoid that kind of an algorithm when I when I was making this because I wanted it to, if there was a frame of video where it was really easy to track the animals, I wanted I wanted my algorithm to get that right. Mm -hmm. um, right, and, because um, once you confuse two flies, then that, that information is lost. That's forever. true, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So mm -hmm. if you're really keeping track of identity, mm -hmm. then then it's it's a pretty difficult problem to get kind of error-free tracking. One of the things we did with C-Tracks is um, 
We also had a, a module that we made for uh, manually correcting any mistakes. Um, mm -hmm. So it would take you to frames of the video where the tracking system thought it might be having trouble and mm -hmm. allow the user to kind of fix those those few mistakes. So you could get kind of these error-free trajectories with relatively small amounts of work. Do people really have to go back and double check quite a bit or? So it depends on what the flies you're doing. Um, if you get kind of normal control flies, it's not that much work. I think it was mm -hmm. on the order of, you know, 10 minutes of work for a 20 minute video, something like that for, you know, 20-ish flies. If you get flies, like we, we did some experiments on fruitless flies, right. um, which are courting constantly, right. um, then there's a lot more work that has to be done to get the trajectories perfect. Mm -hmm. But what we actually do now is... So we're more interested in social behaviors of flies, but we're not necessarily interested in individual statistics. So mm -hmm. we want to know how much of the time the flies spend chasing each other, but mm -hmm. we don't care how much of the time fly one spends chasing fly two, right. right? So it's okay if our tracking system makes mistakes every now and then, as mm -hmm. long as you know we can kind of get population level statistics from right. it. Um, and part of the hope of these programs is not simply to make things easier for scientists and their undergrads by relieving them of hours of manually tabulating data, but also to notice patterns in kind of an unbiased way, right? So things that, um, you know, were previously unobserved. Do you have any examples of this with your program that people... It's, it's a good question. I mean, I think it's one, it's a, one of the things that we can do with these types of programs is... Um, find finer differences than a human eye might see. So what we've been doing with, with uh, C-TREX now is um, doing a neural activation screen. Mm -hmm. um, so we're uh, activating sparse subsets of neurons in the fly brain and looking at the behavioral effects of that. Mm -hmm. And kind of the way that we're doing the activation had been with TRIP, which can sometimes have fairly subtle effects. Sorry, so um, TRIP, the heat-activated channel that can be used to inactivate neurons. To actually to activate, activate them. them. Sorry. Okay. Yeah. Right, yeah. So we're, we're activating neurons and we're looking for the behavioral effects. Right. Um, and uh, um, what we can do here, I think, is... is um, we can compute statistics over, you know, the entire video and, mm -hmm. and, and add up exactly how much of the time the flies spend walking or chasing and mm -hmm. see differences that we wouldn't have seen by eye, but mm -hmm. um, are significant and actually do, do end up being kind of indicative of what's going on in the, in the fly's brain. Um, something else you mentioned is that people in machine learning or I guess maybe even in computer science working on biology problems is a quote-unquote fringe group. When you first started working on bio biology problems, was there a learning curve at all or any differences in thinking? Um, certainly. I mean, so um, through kind of from grad school to um, my postdoc to um, working at Genelia, I've, I've mm. gotten more and more involved in the, in the biology side of things. Um, and, you know, being at Genilia, I actually try to do kind of the, the neuroscience experiments myself. And hmm. I had never, I never have actually taken a biology class. Um, <laughs> and uh, so, you know, learning neuroscience has been um, mm -hmm. difficult. I, I, I know fly neuroscience somewhat okay, but yeah. <laughs> um, um, it's kind of a, a, a particular subset of neuroscience that I know at this point. Um, and um, I think you have to really, if you want to make a system that actually solves a problem that that people care about mm -hmm. um you do have to kind of understand the problem that they're working on mm -hmm. um so it it it's important i think to to spend the time to get the domain knowledge yeah to to actually be able to do that um so i do spend a lot of time kind of working with biologists uh, my lab at Janilia is half biologists and half computer scientists and mm -hmm. i make them sit next to each other <laughs> and argue so that you know they, they try to understand each other's points of view um right. and yeah I and mean, we speak kind of different languages so it's it's a little bit of work to kind of get the communication to to go through
Right. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to ask next. So now in your work at Janela, you're doing quite a bit of collaboration and, and you know, you're trying to understand so many different kinds of approaches and problems. I mean, that's challenging, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, I think I, I like to, I don't know, I, I think that I can bring a unique perspective to some of these biology problems. And, mm-hmm. you know, we t- I talk to a lot of um, my collaborators here and try and understand what the problems that they're working on are and then try to formulate them as a machine learning problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a, a fun thing for me to do. And, uh, yeah, it just kind of requires spending a little bit of time trying to understand actually what they're doing, having a lot of conversations mm-hmm. um, and, you know, a- actually trying to not just, you know, make a system that can track the mouse or whatever it is, mm-hmm. but also work on the statistical analyses that you do after you've already tracked the mouse, right? You want to figure out some, you want to answer some biological question. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's a lot of processing that actually happens after the computer vision is Mm -hmm. done, right? After you've tracked the mouse, you want to analyze exactly, you know, you want to compare two different types of mice, say, and, you know, look at statistics of the of the trajectories of the mice. Mm-hmm. Um, and that type of thing helps me understand kind of what it means to solve the problem and what it means not to solve the problem. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you've moved way beyond just, um, you know, tracking groups of flies or groups of mice, but I've seen that you've even got some projects with tracking, for example, you know, the trajectory of a paw of a mouse grabbing, you know, a fruit right. pellet. Um, yeah. And even maybe some stem cell lineage stuff. Can you tell us about a couple of these projects, maybe? Sure. We uh, we collaborate with a group here that um, does light sheet microscopy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they look at development of Drosophila, among other animals. Mm-hmm. They look at development of everything, basically. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, tracking cells in a developing Drosophila embryo is surprisingly similar to tracking uh, fruit flies on a dish. So it's actually a fairly similar algorithm. It's just kind of a, you know, there's thousands of cells in this in this embryo as opposed to tens of flies mm-hmm. um, that we tracked. But actually, we use quite similar algorithms. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's, it's kind of fun to be able to see the similarities in, in a bunch of different projects mm-hmm. um, at Genelia and kind of reduce them to, to similar algorithms that will solve different problems. Mm-hmm. And uh, I guess the other thing that I try to do is I, I try to talk with a number of groups at Genelia to figure out kind of common themes in the types of problems that, mm-hmm. that people are working on. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, we, we've been working a lot on um, tracking parts of animals recently. Mm-hmm. So the paw of a mouse or the legs of a fly. Mm-hmm. Um, and hopefully at some point we're going to try to track, you know, neurons in a, in a, in a light sheet microscope's images of, of a kind of developing nervous system. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so all of these things, you can use the same machine learning system on to, mm-hmm. to try to um, track those things. Mm-hmm. So it's all about kind of, you know, machine learning is nice because it generalizes well to a bunch of different problems. You give it these labels of what you want the algorithm to do, and then it can kind of learn a function that does that. Sounds exciting. And uh, so I guess we usually we're coming to a close now. So maybe you could give us a little bit of a preview of your upcoming talk at Stanford this week. Sure. Yeah. So I'm going to talk about this neural activation screen that we've we've been working on. So we um, there's a a collection of GAL4 lines that was developed at, at Genelia by uh, Jerry Rubin in his lab. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're, they're able to kind of target sparse subsets of neurons, um, and they have kind of thousands of these different GAL4 lines. And um, we went through and we activated the neuron for each of these GAL4 lines and recorded video um, of the animals behaving um, and the behavioral effects of activation and use computer vision to automatically quantify those mm-hmm. behavioral effects. Mm-hmm. And then, so, so we did this with about 2,000 of these different genotypes um, and, and ended up with um, around 20,000 videos of, of 
20 flies walking around a dish. <laughs> That's um, <a> lot. So we, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's something like 200 days of video. Oh, um, wow. And uh, yeah, so we, you know, we didn't, we automatically kind of quantify the behavioral effects and put, and, you know, co- put together all of this data about which neurons we were activating and what the behavioral effects are to try and figure out what neurons are involved in each behavior. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, so we look forward to that talk. Um, and generally, we like to close the show with what we call our rapid fire questions. So this is just okay. like a couple of questions. Um, uh, they should be brief and fun. So just whatever comes to your head. All right. So the first question we like to ask, um, if you could go back in time and speak to yourself, Kristen, as a graduate student, what advice would you give yourself? I mean, I think I think the thing that, you know, I've become much more of an engineer. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, le- you know, thinking about a problem globally as opposed to kind of just thinking about the part of the problem that you're good at solving. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm not a, I was not at the time great at, you know, engineering my own rigs and, and looking at, you know, figuring out the best camera to use or the best lighting system to use. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I kind of concentrated on the part of the problem that I was good at, which is kind of the math of developing algorithms. Mm-hmm. And uh, the problem would have been much better solved if I had kind of, you know, thought about everything at once and tried to engineer a kind of global solution to the problem. Mm-hmm. So That's I would tell that to myself. All right. Second question. Uh, recent excitement has erupted over the observation of gravitational waves detected by, I guess it's LIGO, L-I-G-O. Um, as a former student of astrophysics, can you tell us what you think is the coolest thing in space? The coolest thing in space? I don't have a good answer to that question. So. <laughs> That's okay. Um, were you excited to hear that announcement? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, I was just excited to, I mean, as a scientist, right, it's, it's really rewarding to see somebody actually do something that they have no idea that it's going to work. And before they're even ready to turn on the machine, yeah. they get, I mean, I'm a little jealous, right? <laughs> but, but yeah, that was, that was exciting to me. It's a huge project too. So not to know that it's going to work is a, yeah. <laughs> quite an investment. Um, but we're all excited that it did. If there was one human behavior, human behavior that you could track, as you've tracked a lot of animal behavior, what would it be? Um, I mean, I think um, one thing that would be potentially interesting for using this type of approach for would be um, trying to address kind of mental illness problems. Mm -hmm. Um, So so there are, you know, people who do manual uh, behavior analysis for humans um, Mm -hmm. for kind of trying to diagnose statistics of of, you know, various mental illnesses like schizophrenia, mm-hmm. um, trying to be able to quantify whether um, uh, various treatments are actually helping and, you know, having quantitative numbers for that would be would be useful. Um, mm-hmm. And also, you know, getting big enough data sets to actually be able to measure whether some of the um, treatments are helping. Um, mm-hmm. So it would be, I mean, I would be interested in, in trying to apply these types of techniques for trials like that where you're trying to measure whether um, treatments are actually helping in non- mental illnesses. Mm-hmm. That would be really interesting. Um, So thanks uh, so much for speaking with me today um, and look forward to your visit. Okay, thank you. And thank you all for listening. We hope you'll join us next week when our guest will be Adam Cohen, professor of chemistry and chemical biology and of physics at Harvard University. Neurotalk is a production of Neurite West. Neurotalk was founded by Erica Senor, Mark Petalina, and Forrest Coleman. This episode was produced by David Lipton, Luis Giam, Eddie Alberin, Andrew Gundren, Viet Nguyen, Jordan Sorokin, Sharon Liu, and myself, Ada Yi. Adam Fuchel and Kyle Riley composed and performed our theme song. You can find all of the past episodes of Neurotalk and our radio show, Brains and Bourbon, as well as articles about everything neuroscience by visiting our website at www.neuritewest.org, spelled N-E-U-W-R-I-T-E-West.org. 
You can also follow Neurite West on Twitter using our handle at Stanford Neuro. This is Neurotalk, and I'm Yu Yi. Thank you.